It's WKX on the morning at 1450 AM, 103.9 FM Concord, 101.9 FM Manchester, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Tune in to WKX on the morning weekdays from 6 AM to 8 AM, and then get all the episodes on demand at nhtalkradio.com. This week, we have our regular segment with the New Hampshire Bulletin. Senior reporter Anne-Marie Timmons is back. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to see you. See you. So you were hard at work today uh, with a follow-up with something we've talked about here on the show in the past, which is dental benefits being added into Medicaid, but that appears to be easier said than done in the real world. It was. I don't want to minimize the success of getting that legislation through. It took oral health advocates 15, 20 years to first get people to understand that oral health is health, mm-hmm. um, and then to expand benefits because as I'm sure your listeners have heard before, right now, if you're an adult on Medicaid, of which there are 85,000 of them, you can have a tooth pulled once it goes bad, but you can't have a cleaning to prevent that. That's now changed. The um, governor signed two bills that um, will, will take care of that, but there are no, there's not enough dentists to see those people. So I took a look at that. Um, there's 16% of dentists in the state take Medicaid. Um, so that's a pretty small number and they have been treating children because up until now, that's who is eligible. Um, taking on adults, 85,000 adults, they're going to need more dentists, period. And then also dentists who take Medicaid. And so the state is working on that. They have some partnerships with dental schools um, outside of the state, Maine and at Harvard where they bring in uh, students in hopes that they not only can help while they're here, but they'll come back. Um, and they're also just uh, going to schools in China to get people here. You know, there's, there's like, you know, a dozen or so students at any given time. And I asked by state primary care association, I said, is that number small? And she said, no, we don't need 200 dentists. We need a few in strategic spots and then they need to take Medicaid. So that's one aspect. Also, the you know, the state is trying to address the concern about Medicaid, which is paperwork, regulations. And the other big one is folks on Medicaid, you know, have unpredictable lives often. Their life circumstances are not, um, don't always match up with keeping an appointment. Their car may not work. They may not have paid time off. So there's a big piece of this care management that will come with this contract the state ultimately awards that takes care of all that for dentists. So someone else will do all that part that dentists are worried about. And that's hopefully the state hopes that will entice more people to come on board. The dentists I talked to who take Medicaid, so that's huge. So if they can pull that off, get more dentists here and have a decent reimbursement rate, it will go forward. Those are three big things though. So I'll keep following it, but uh, so good news on step one, now a big step two ahead of them. Now that 16% of dentists in the state that will accept it currently as it stands, how are they distributed through the state? They must, if I had to guess, they're gonna be primarily around the metropolitan areas. Oh, did you say 60? 16. Oh, 16. Okay. That's one of the questions. It's a little hard to tell, but for example, up in the upper, over in the upper valley, um, at least three dentists and their practices closed. Um, the Valley News reported this in July because of retirements and workforce shortage. They took Medicaid. Um, up north, an oral surgeon retired a year or two ago. No one else is up there to provide that. So I think you're right. It's going to be concentrated down um, in the southern part of the state. Um, Amanusik Health Center, you know, at one point was a 
a northern uh, public health center that provided dental care, they can't find anyone right now. So, yeah, I think this is not a, uh, a dentist in every county situation. It's, it's going to take some strategic placement, um, as by state, state noted. I mean, is there even really a strong dental education program in the state? I can't think of any schools that really have it. There is the um, hygienist program at NHTI, and that's a great pipeline uh, for hygienists, which obviously dental practices need to stay afloat. So definitely a piece of um, the puzzle here. The, there's not a dental school and there wasn't a residency program here. Um, the state has now wor- is working with the dental school at the University of New England in Maine. They're providing students to about 12 or 13 sites for 10 to 12 week rotations. So that's quite a bit of time. Harvard is currently sending one and we'll be soon sending four more once a pending program gets up and running. And they're all um, sort of rural track, public health minded. So that's you know what the state needs. That is what's going to align with Medicaid. So that they've had to really look out of state, but um, Harvard especially was very excited to bring on a new program and dedicate them to New Hampshire. So um, I think, and that's the work of the state oral health advocates really pulling that together. Are the providers okay with the rates Medicaid is paying out? I mean, is that part of the problem or is is it more the paperwork and red tape you have to go through to be in a government program here? I think you could put that all in the box of problems. Yeah. Um, We don't know what the Medicaid reimbursement rate is here um, at the moment. And I talked to Dr. Sarah Finney, who works on all this at HHS. She said um, each procedure may have a different reimbursement rate. And you often hear like 50 cents on the dollar and that's really a figure of speech. It's it's not that's not a true number. And she said, it's re- everyone does this, but she said it's unfair to compare what Medicaid pays versus what a commercial insurance company pays because they can be more selective about who they are insuring. That could mean a healthier population. Medicaid takes everybody, um, and again, just because of their life circumstances, they haven't maybe had access to healthcare for years. So they come much sicker and in greater need. Um, so it, when you have to balance every, cover everyone and you have a certain pot of money, I think that's where you see the reimbursement rates um, drop a bit, but that doesn't make it any easier for a dentist who, I mean, that makes sense, but dentists still have to make a living, keep a practice going. And so the economics of it, even if they want to do this, and I have heard many do, if they run in a small business, that business that's hard to do. Um, so it's not desire necessarily; it's economics and management of potentially really complicated cases. Moving over to another matter that sounds fantastic and is great, the legislation made through. But oh God, how do we make it happen? Is uh, is New Hampshire law that requires National Suicide Prevention Lifeline to be included on student ID cards, which is a fantastic idea ultimately. Yes, this was a pretty emotional hearing to go um, to early this year in the House and Senate. Uh, a pa- parents who had a student who died by suicide. He was a Merrimack Valley High School grad. He was a student at NHTI and he died by suicide. And, you know, as we do see, sometimes um, people pour their grief into trying to, you know, prevent this for others. And so they really worked to get this phone number. They wanted this phone number on student IDs. Um, so that happened. The governor signed it. Um, there's a little 
couple of caveats. It's only for grades six to 12 and then higher ed, which I know that you are contending with, like trying to figure out the logistics of that. The other thing that's really important is if you are in New Hampshire and you have an out-of-state area code, which a lot of people do, if you call the 988 number, you certainly will get help. There'll be someone there to answer your call, but they route you to your mental health center that matches your area code. It doesn't match where you are. So you're not going to be sent to the mental health hotline in New Hampshire. And the reason that matters is because that hotline, that answer, call answering center can send a mobile crisis team to you you know, very quickly. And so that process is going to be really delayed if you get back to the New Hampshire center. It's going to take some time. So I've heard people really encourage um, adults, children, everybody to plug in the New Hampshire lifeline number into their phone. Um, and I can just tell you what that is. Yes, please. 1-833-710-6477. Clearly not as easy to remember as 988, so keep both of them. But again, if you have an out-of-state area code, this is going to get you to, you know, local help much, much faster. Is there a deadline and when they're expecting schools to have this phone number listed on the IDs? Well, it, it's interesting. The law took effect, you know, immediately. Um, but I think what I read is when you issue an ID, when you next issue an ID and when you re reissue for the next year, say, that's when you have to have it on there. So I know you, you would know better. Schools must be working on this now for the incoming class. Uh, you know, so yeah, you don't I, have, like, under the, the hood, I my full-time job is at the University of New Hampshire at the law school. And uh, guess what? It's August 3rd. The law school's orientation for a portion of our student body is next Wednesday. And good luck finding ID cards with the supply chain shortages that have been going on. And plus, nowadays, and universities have already done this on more than the law school has, RFID chips are, are on all these cards or need to be put on the cards with a little dot sticker thing that goes on there. Uh, that costs money. <laughs> and if you already printed your ID cards and now you're going, oh, I, I've wasted all these RFID dots and everything, it's, it's crazy. Right. And as we often see, I didn't see any dollar signs of funding in this bill. So, you know, you're probably on your own with that. Um, I, I wonder if there's going to be a little wiggle room if you have issued ID cards. It'll take effect next time, you know, you issue them again. That's right. You're not going to get those up and running immediately. I mean, schools could instead post the number for 988 in the meantime, and I'm sure many will, but right. It's, it's another one of those great ideas. Sounds good, but there's some other little details we should talk about. And yeah, those are it, some it, it's like they should have waited like for starting the next academic cycle, or if you're doing some mid cycle enrollments, you, you put it in, but to say right now, by the way, you, you should be doing this and like school's going to be starting soon, especially in the higher education field right now. And the, like I said, the supply chain. Good luck getting ID cards. It's hard enough as it is, and now you got to figure out this side of it. It's 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 going to be I, crazy. Well, I didn't get an answer to this, but it's interesting to me that this starts for sixth graders. And yeah. I was uh, briefly a school counselor, left journalism for a bit, got my master's, became a school counselor. It was brief, but I did see students who were under sixth grade who had suicidal concerns. So they do exist. Um, it's a mistake to think that 
kids are struggling with these heavy emotions, you know, sixth grade and on. Um, so I didn't really get an, an answer on that. I understand like very younger kids, you want to have a parent definitely involved, but fourth and fifth graders are pretty mature when it comes to this kind of thing and they are seeking help. And so I thought that was interesting too. And I couldn't, didn't have time to get clarity on why sixth grade, not fifth grade. So that would be interesting to me. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's uh, just because of uh patient privacy and such if there's a minor with minors if the mental health crisis hotline has different rules that they have to follow the younger the individual gets that very well could be true that's a good question good idea Moving over to the uh, Youth Development Center settlement, which has been all over the news for months now. And (laughs) there was some quotes from attorney Chuck Douglas that were (laughs) kind of reaming out the the attorneys representing the victims in this uh, case. Can you speak to what's going on here? Yes, this was a real blast from the past for me because 20 years ago, which I can't believe it was 20 years ago, (laughs) I was covering the the Catholic Church um, abuse scandal in New Hampshire. At that time, the two of the big attorneys on that case were Chuck Douglas for victims, David Vicinanzo and others for the church. And Chuck Douglas's point is David Vicinanzo, who now has 500 plus clients who were YDC victims says the state is not offering them enough money, but in the cap on sexual abuse is $1.5 million payout. If you go through this settlement process with the state physical abuse, uh, I think $150,000. He thinks those are too low. He's not the only one who thinks that, but what Chuck Douglas wanted to remind people is that when Attorney Vicinanzo is representing the church. The church would agree to only much lower settlements. Um, and he said, you know, this this uh, this is very different. We're having a very different tune from Attorney Vicinanzo on this. And so it was just interesting to see them back now, essentially on the same side because they're um, representing victims, um, but still quite opposed. I think what this is, there's there's some attorneys who have clients who want to just go through this settlement process, which will begin in January. They need money now. They have rent, they have child support to pay, what have you. They don't want to go through court and spend 20 years fighting this out. Maybe they get less money than they would at a jury, but they don't have time or interest in going through that court process. So you have a group of attorneys who have clients who want to pursue that settlement process. And then you have attorney Vicinanzo who has clearly the bulk of the clients at 500 plus, and he wants to go through the court process. And he has said they do as well. And that is going to be a years long process, Um, but he's convinced that they'll get a fairer outcome there. And so it's really, uh, it's a philosophy of which way do we go um, so it'll be interesting to see how many of Attorney Vicinanzo's clients stay on that path because some have already started calling Chuck Douglas, he said, um, to say, take me on. I don't want to go through that process. I just don't have time. I'm sitting in jail right now. I need money for an attorney for my other case. Let's move. We have to get this. And so it'll really be too, it'll be interesting to see how many go um, each way. And that should, I think we'll see the rules approved on all of these sums and um, the process next week. And then claims should start being, you could submit them in January, early first of January. And you only have a year, I believe. Um, 
I wrote dental benefits all day in my brain. <laughs> it's something like that. It's limited how, how long you can Very limited. Can in there. Um, there's more information on the Department of Justice's website, and you can see the rubric, how much each sort of crime um, would be paid at. Um, it's interesting, and we'll see if those are what get through. I suspect there won't be a lot of changes, So, um, but that's where to look. If, and if you need to file a claim and you want to go through that process, you can do that there as well. I, I know Attorney Douglas has a bit of a might have a little bit of a vendetta against against the the other attorney a little bit, but generally speaking, I spoke with Attorney Michael Lewis from Rathing and Pignatelli a few weeks back about the this case, and the, it's a it's a rough spot where you want to really make the state hurt for not taking care of this and for other like systemic issues that are in the uh this the system when kids end up in there either the juvenile court system or just the foster care system or um the way the police departments may have handled certain cases are really messy like there's this hard line between advocacy in the long term versus the clients that are right in front of you exactly and everyone needs something different uh, and even Chuck Douglas will say that, you know, some of these cases are so egregious that they have to go to trial because that has to be known what that person deserves trial. Some people have not lesser cases, but cases that would be paid less money, you know, maybe should go this route. So the state's argument is you can do either. You can right. both those options are available to you. But that's right. You know, what do you do? How do you balance your client's needs with what probably the state should have to go through for you know ignoring this really i think that's the right word ignoring this for for so so long it is a balancing act and i think attorneys will tell you ultimately it's the client's call um, and attorney bisanazo says his clients are committed to the court process and that's the bulk of them i mean in just the first cases it's 3 million pages of discovery so 3 million documents that are going to have to be presented and gone through so you can just start to see how long all of that is going to take when you have 500 600 people's um, cases to hear they will be sort of consolidated but that's not it's not going to be a quick process for sure yeah, it, it may just don't want to relive everything to go through all that because they, there's a chance they could end up in court if they really want to support the case that's going on. Like all, mm-hmm. all your laundry's brought out. The the state yeah. might, if they really want to go hard to try and limit the amount of cases to go through, it could be it could be really kind of gross ultimately when you're looking as a civilian. But if your attorney needing to to win the case in order to defend the state, it, it's it's hard. It is hard and. You know, victims will have to relive what happened to them. Um, obviously, that is a, a, a traumatic experience and, and triggers all those traumas again. Uh, and some clients maybe are up for that and some aren't. Uh, but the process through court, I think, will be much more um, not antagonistic, but uh, more invasive. The questions you'll be on the stand and the questions will be, there'll be more questions and they will be more pointed. The state says, if you use the settlement process, we basically want to know when you were there, what cottages you lived in, CO, like the, the officer's names that you remember and generally what happened to you. Um, and they say there will not be this interrogation approach. Um, I know some attorneys are worried about whether that's actually true, but that's the state's plan to go that route. And when I talked to Chuck Douglas about it, he said, I'll be there. If it starts to become an interrogation, I'll shut it down. So 
I'm going to go in assuming that that's really the process and be prepared to, to you know, go to court instead if they have to. Senior reporter Anne-Marie Timmons of the New Hampshire Bulletin, thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's good to see you. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from them. This is WKXL in the morning. We'll be right back after this.